One of the major themes right here at the end of James's letter relates to prayer. So we're going to be spending some time talking about and then practicing some of what we read this morning. But before we get there, we do need to back up. There was one verse that we didn't quite make it to last week, so I at least want to bring that up and address it briefly this morning. So you've probably noticed over the past two and a half months or so, while we are working our way through the book of James, we have also spent a decent amount of time just about every week in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is due to the fact that James is reiterating much of what Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry. And the beginning of this concluding section in chapter 5 is no different as James quotes Jesus almost verbatim in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, where he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So he says, above all, do not swear. Now, clearly we're not talking about swearing in terms of the the good old four-letter words that you are tempted to mutter under your breath when you become angry, right? Is that just me? Just joking. So let them fly. Don't, Don't really. I think James addressed this enough earlier in this letter for us to find some principles when it comes to the language we use. Obviously, words are just syllables that have been put together, and so words in and of themselves aren't in any way intrinsically evil or sinful, but the bigger issue in relation to our speech, at least according to James, is what the words we speak are used for. Are we using our speech to build up, to encourage, to show kindness, etc.? Because that's the criteria for what makes our speech either sinful or or pure. I mean, think about it. We could avoid using all of the words that are deemed curse words culturally and still fail to love others with our words. But again, that's not specifically the type of speech or swearing that James is referring to here. He's talking about swearing oaths. And he essentially says, just don't do it. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. This is very similar to something that we see Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, although Jesus takes it to the extreme a little bit in verse 33, where he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So he's referring back to the Jewish law. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You have heard it said in the Jewish law, don't swear falsely. So there was clearly a provision in the law which allowed for oaths, and then that provision went on to stipulate how God's people should go about swearing oaths. And it wasn't total or absolute avoidance. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find the command for the people of Israel to fear God, to serve him only, and to swear oaths by his name, not by the names of other gods. This is interesting, right? Seems to be a little bit of tension here. Jesus says, don't swear at all. The Old Testament, the law that we find handed down from Moses says, if you're going to swear, swear by God's name, not by the names of other gods. Now, even in the 
Jewish law, it wasn't a free-for-all. We continue to find this law narrowed a little bit. When we get to Leviticus chapter 19, the command that we find that the people are instructed not to swear falsely in God's name. So it was clearly still a very serious issue. But then Jesus comes along, and then James after him. But Jesus says this, if we continue reading in verse 34, but I say to you, You've heard it said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to say, I swear. I could say, I promise, but I couldn't say, I swear. So even though by both of those phrases, I meant the exact same thing, it's just one of those arbitrary lines that my parents drew for me that I could not cross, which I'm discovering that's what parenting is about. You just draw arbitrary lines and insist that your child stays on one side of those lines. But we could also think about our Anabaptist brothers and sisters and who have very serious issues with taking oaths. So it wasn't just my parents. And often our Anabaptist brothers and sisters refused to do so on religious grounds, even if called to be a witness in the courtroom. But in the first century, taking an oath or swearing by an oath had become so commonplace that a statement was almost unbelievable if it wasn't accompanied by said oath. The oath is what made somebody's words at least seem reliable. And so people would often invoke the name of God as their witness, saying, God is the one who can punish me if what I'm saying does not come true. And so it served to add an element of trustworthiness to the words that were spoken. I mean, if they're willing to be punished by God, I guess they're pretty serious about what they're saying. Now, by the time Jesus comes along, out of a reverence for God and a desire not to profane his name, and probably out of a healthy understanding of some of the things we talked about several weeks ago, the fact that we are incapable of guaranteeing much about our future. And so, perhaps out of a healthy understanding of that fact, um, people started backing up a bit on swearing by God's name. So they would swear by any number of other things because they still wanted to guarantee the words they were speaking, but they also didn't want to put themselves at a risk of, I don't know, being struck down by a lightning bolt or something like that. And so Jesus, understanding what's going on culturally, begins listing all of these things that one, other than the name of God, that one might be tempted to swear an oath by, whether that's heaven or the earth or Jerusalem or your own head. And he says, just don't do it. Simply let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And I think one of the things we find in the teaching of Jesus, as well as what James argues in this letter, is that our speech should be measured to the degree that when we speak, people know that they can trust that we're being honest. We may not be right about everything we say, and we're not claiming to be right about everything we say, but we are speaking truth constantly to the best of our ability. 
So now we've, we've covered that. We're going to transition in these issues of speech that James talks about. And we turn now to the main issue in today's text, which is the issue of prayer, another form that our speech may take. So we get to verse 13, where he says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, in some ways, what we've just read is very similar to something we see Paul encourage uh, the Ephesians in chapter 6, where he says, pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Pray in every season. And James 2 suggests that whatever your circumstances, your response should be the same, and that is prayer. And so he asks a series of questions. He says, are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Pray. Sing your praise to God. Are you sick? Pray. There is never a season, there is never a circumstance we face where our initial and foundational commitment is not or should not be prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that we are constantly engaged in sort of these vociferous and elegant prayers at all times. No, rather, in every season, we have a prayerful mind or heart. In every still moment throughout our days, we once again recenter and focus our minds on Christ. You may remember at the beginning of this letter, I think we covered it in the second week, where James was opening his letter by reminding his audience that they would, in fact, face trials of many kinds. And then he encouraged them, in the face of those trials, to do what? To count it all as joy, because those difficulties were producing steadfastness within the ones who endured. So he opened the letter with the inevitability of suffering, and here at the very end, he returns to this idea. So the inevitability of suffering sort of functions as bookends for this letter. And here at the end, he says, are you suffering? Well, if you're suffering, your first response should be prayer. Your first response isn't anxiety or worry or a constant complaining. Your first response should be prayer. But we need to understand that prayer in the middle of suffering is not necessarily always done with the end goal of deliverance from that suffering. Again, because of what James argued at the beginning of this letter, we don't always know what good might come from the difficult situations we face. So rather, even when we are suffering, our emphasis in prayer is on how we might be changed and how we might become more like Christ through whatever circumstance we happen to be facing in the moment. Brennan Manning, the, the late influential Christian thinker and speaker, said, prayer is death to any identity that does not come from God. Prayer is death to any identity that does not come from God. And I think that is probably at no time more true than when we are praying in the middle of suffering. When we are going to God in prayer, during difficult seasons. James says, are you suffering? Pray. Now, maybe for you that's easy enough, but 
Perhaps it is this second reality that James highlights that is very difficult for you to maintain a prayerful heart. Second one is, are you cheerful? Well, sing your praise. I think this can be difficult because it's easy when we are cheerful or when we are content, when we are filled with joy, it is easy to forget the simple fact of our lives that we are absolutely dependent on our Creator for all of the blessing of this life. We are dependent on our Creator for life itself, for, for the next breath that we inhale. And so the instruction from James is, if you're in the middle of a season where you are overwhelmingly aware of God's provision your first response is to recognize that and sing your praise to God, a praise of adoration and a recognition of his sustaining hand in your life. And I think one of the effects of these questions that he is asking back to back is that he reveals that our posture of crying out to God is not just something that we do in the middle of a time of want. We do cry out to God. We do offer our prayers to God when we are in the middle of difficulty, when we are experiencing want. But our first response is also to cry out to God when we are content, when things are going well, when we are filled with joy, when we're cheerful. So are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing praise to God. And then finally, the third designation in verse 14, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what about the sick? James says, let the one who is sick call for the elders of the church. They will pray for them, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer will save them. So call for the elders is the first instruction. Now, eldership was a role that was widespread in the first century church. Many of Paul's letters, we find him explicitly mentioning the role of eldership, or at other times he just assumes that it is functioning in the church. But simply put, elders... We could think of them as spiritually mature individuals in the congregation who are involved in the work of ministry. Individuals who are working to help provide spiritual care for the flock. So when we think of elders, it doesn't have to be an official role within the congregation. Uh, it doesn't have to be a prestigious position. In fact, really what we find when we look at the New Testament is that Eldership was a position of service, a position of care, not one of notoriety or a position of some special benefits. So James says, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church, have them anoint you with oil, and pray for you. Well, this is interesting, right? Have them anoint you with oil. I grew up in a tradition where this was standard practice. So when I hear or read this, it doesn't sound strange at all to me. But I understand that for some of you, it may seem like a pretty bizarre instruction. What, what do you mean, anoint me with oil? I don't really like the sounds of that. And maybe it's not all that uh, weird to you with the, the surge in popularity of essential oils and the like. Maybe <laughs> you're thinking, actually, that 
sounds great, you know, especially if somebody's sick, I recommend thieves. Just dump a whole bottle on them. But, but what is the purpose of this instruction that we find in James? Is this process of anointing somebody with oil a magical ritual through which we believe our prayers are answered? Or is the oil itself some holy substance that imputes the presence of God to us? Or is it just a process where we are using the natural healing properties of the oil itself, like thieves' oil? Is that what this is all about? I mean, we could think of the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is said to have poured oil and wine on the wounds of the man who had been attacked. So that's possible. It's possible that the benefit of this ritual is from the healing properties of the oil itself, but I think for a variety of reasons it becomes clear that anointing in this passage seems to have more of a religious or spiritual function than an attempt to provide a purely natural remedy for the illness. I mean, if it was just about the healing properties of the oil, why call for the elders? I mean, you can apply that oil to your own sickness. Now, some will also argue at the other end of the spectrum that anointing with oil has a sacramental function. Sacramental function. Do you know what I mean by that? So the sacraments of the church, these are these rituals or these practices that we believe mysteriously in some way convey the grace of God to us. Of course, the two main sacraments of the church, number one, water baptism, which we will participate in next week, and we'll talk in more detail about, about what that sacrament is. And then the second one, the Eucharist, or Holy Communion, which we participate in and celebrate every week. We'll do that in just a few moments. But I believe that God does meet us in a mysterious but in a very real way through participation in these sacraments. So I'm not closed off at all to the idea that anointing the sick with oil could have a sacramental function. But I think first and foremost, where our focus should be is on what this action symbolizes. And we find some of this throughout our scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, where we see individuals who are anointed with oil as a symbol that that person is being consecrated or set apart for God. Maybe you remember the story that's told in Leviticus chapter 8, where Moses is said to have anointed Aaron with oil to consecrate him to God for service. And in another place, we find the description of oil sort of running down through his beard. Now, just as a, a, a word of assurance for you, if you would like to be anointed with oil, we're not going to put so much on that it's running down your beard if you have a beard. But in prayer, in anointing an ill individual with oil, all parties involved are symbolically recognizing that the individual being prayed for is set aside for the care of God. We're simply symbolizing that we trust God to care for the individual being prayed for. So I think in some ways this is similar to the reason we light candles around the room. Maybe you've seen people lighting those candles from time to time, and you've wondered what's that, that all about? Or do we believe that the flame or the smoke rising from the flame is actually carrying our prayers to God? Just so you know, no, we don't. 
Or is that some magical ritual that ensures that God can hear our prayers? No, it is simply a physical act. We are doing something. It is a visible symbol to remind us in the middle of whatever situation or circumstance we are praying for, we remind ourselves that Christ is bringing his light into the darkness of the circumstance we are praying about. And I think anointing an ill individual with oil serves a similar function. We are doing something physical, something tangible to remind ourselves that we trust God to care for us. So if anyone is sick, they should call for the elders who will anoint them with oil and pray for them. And prayer here really is the emphasis. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick if they've committed sins, their sins will be forgiven. This is an idea that we're going to deal with in more detail in two weeks when we conclude this series. But this is a verse that has been the source of a lot of debate for obvious reasons, and I'm not interested in telling you precisely how to view this promise, but I only want to encourage us to think about the context of what's going on here. So some take the view that this is an unequivocal promise that all of our illness will be healed. With one stipulation, right? If only we can have enough, what? Faith. If we can have enough faith, all of our illness will be eradicated. That's what it's dependent on. Have faith. You won't experience illness. If you do experience illness, pray and muster up enough faith, and it will be gone. That's fine, but I, I don't think our experience bears that out. I know mine doesn't, and it's going to be a moment of honesty. How many of you have prayed for something, maybe a physical illness that you've experienced? Have you prayed for something and nothing has happened? Go ahead and raise your hand if you feel comfortable. That is just about everybody in this room. That's been my experience. I have prayed for healing for myself and for others a lot of times throughout my life, and only one time that I am aware of at least was that prayer answered in sort of a miraculous and instantaneous way. I have very clear memories of that day and the surroundings and everything that was going on because it was such a special and really a supernatural moment, but that was just one time out of all of the prayers that I have lifted to God on behalf of myself and on behalf of other people, one time that I'm aware of was that prayer answered in the way that I asked. That's not a very good track record, right? Especially for a pastor. <laughs> I mean, when your percentage of success is much lower than Shaq's career free throw percentage, you're probably doing something wrong. That's been my experience, and yet I continue to pray for physical healing for myself for others. I pray for you when you experience illness, first of all, because we have been instructed to do so. And secondly, because I believe God can, and I believe he still does heal, like he did through the life of Jesus, like he did through the lives of the apostles. 
Well, some will say, no, you're, you're completely misunderstanding what this passage is about. This is not a reference to physical healing at all. It is only a reference to the spiritual healing that occurs through our faith and through our prayers. And I would just push back on that and say, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the context of what's going on in James makes it clear that both of those aspects of healing are at least in play here. And so, at least this is my approach. I pray for healing, and I believe that God can heal our bodies. But what is more, ultimately when I pray, I believe that even if I, or even if the person I am praying for isn't healed today, I do believe that God is going to heal and redeem our broken bodies in the resurrection. And so we continue to pray. We pray for healing today, but as we pray, we're always looking towards the future and always holding on to the hope of the resurrection life we will receive. Rowan Williams, the former Anglican bishop and theologian, said, Prayer is somehow or other the territory in which our thinking about God and ourselves comes into focus. Thinking about God and ourselves comes into focus. And I think this is a helpful lens to view some of these things James is talking about through. In prayer, our thinking about God and ourselves changes. And it changes for the better. It comes into focus. Things that were blurry come into focus. And they don't come into focus in that we always have clear answers or that we have certainty about those issues but they come into focus in that we learn to trust despite the fact that we don't understand. Do you remember that story that is told in Mark chapter 9? There's a man that has a, a son who is described as having an unclean spirit. And so the man brings his son to the disciples. And if you remember the story, the disciples are unable to do anything for the man. And so he looks to Jesus and says, look, this is the condition that my son is going through, and I'm really afraid that he's going to have a convulsion that throws him into a fire and just completely destroys him. So if you could do something to help us, would you have compassion? Jesus says, if I can. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. For the one who believes. And how does the father respond? He responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Mark says Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and it came out of the boy. But I think in the man's response to Jesus, we find a, a picture of true faith. The man says, I believe, yes, but I also recognize that I am troubled by all of these doubts. So I believe, but would you help my unbelief? I don't think this is a, a picture of a lack of faith, but I think it is the beginning point of true faith. Re referring to this father's response to Jesus, Flannery O'Connor once wrote, quoting his response, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is the most natural and most human and most agonizing prayer in the Gospels. And I think it is the foundation prayer of faith. The foundation prayer of faith. I believe, help my unbelief. Have you been there? Maybe you're there now, and it is agonizing. It feels dark, and it feels really lonely, but it is such a human prayer 
And I believe it is where true faith begins because true faith begins not with certainty, not with mustering up enough certainty about the issue you're praying about, but true faith begins with trust. So this is what we're going to do today. Kevin, if you all want to come up. James has instructed us in three specific ways in this passage, and so we are going to be obedient to what the Spirit of Christ is speaking to us. James instructs those within the community of faith to pray. He says, are you suffering? Pray. You're going to have the opportunity to do that over the next few moments. Are you cheerful? Sing praise. And then finally, are you sick? Have the elders pray for you. And we're going to invite you uh, to do that. As we are sharing in the Eucharist, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to make two lines down the center aisle as we do week after week. You can take the bread, the body of Christ, which was broken for you. You can take the cup, the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. And we believe that Jesus is going to